0: Welcome to the Advocacy Podcast, Journeys to Excellence. We speak with Queen's counsel, trial lawyers, and judges from around the world about how they excel in the courtroom. Please subscribe on your favourite podcast platform and visit us for additional resources at theadvocacypodcast.com. I'm your host, Bibi Badejo. Today's guest is Ross Guberman, the author of two highly acclaimed books, Point Made. How to Write Like the Nation's Top Advocates, and Point Taken, How to Write Like the World's Best Judges. Ross is the president of Legal Writing Pro, an advanced legal writing training and consulting firm. He is also the founder of Briefcatch, an editing tool specifically made for legal writing. You can win a three-month license for Briefcatch, so listen out for the competition details later. In this episode, Ross discusses what makes good writing and offers tips which you can implement immediately. Well, hello, Ross. Welcome to the Advocacy Podcast. Hi, how are you today? Really good. How are you? Happy to be here. Great. We're so happy to have you. And can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, please?
1: Sure. I'm generally known as a legal writing consultant, which means I do a lot of training and consulting uh, with courts, uh, law firms, sometimes governmental agencies, corporations, anywhere there's any kind of legal space, focusing on all aspects of legal writing, uh, various documents, various styles, various challenges. And in more uh, recent years, I've turned to the very exciting world of legal tech and I've designed software to do a lot of what I've been teaching for 17, 18 years.
0: From what I can see, you have, well, you're basically an authority, really, when it comes to legal writing. And I'm just gonna run through a few of the things that you have produced, being your books, Point Made and Point Taken, we have Deal Struck, Contract Catch, Brief Catch. You also train federal judges. You provide workshops for law firms, agencies, corporations, and associations. And you're a professorial lecturer, as well as a trusted advisor for the Professional Development Consortium. Wow. I mean, what was your background before you came to law and you became this authority in legal writing?
1: It's a little bit of a strange how this path. I actually was a musician when I was very young and I went to a performing arts high school, believe it or not. And I then delved into academia. So I was going to become a professor and I dropped out of my PhD program, as many people have before me in this country, to go to law school. You know, it's a good landing place when you're really not quite sure what you want to do. So I Obviously, I finished law school and I did practice for a while. And then the list you rattled off, um, you know, it's all rockier than it, it sounds like when it's in a list. Um, those things happened, you know, in a interesting sequence or series. But yeah, I mean, I don't know what makes someone an authority. Maybe it's all in our own minds, but I have really enjoyed this path and I sort of am curious to see my own path develop as well as time goes on.
0: Speaking about curiosity, I'm really curious about what instrument you played. What was it? I
1: played the viola. So Oh wow. not, you know, not the most popular instrument for a youngster, but that was my instrument.
0: But a very sophisticated instrument, I must say.
1: <laughs> oh, we like to think that, you know, violas <laughs> feel like uh, ugly ducklings sometimes, but you know, it's a, kind of a somber instrument, kind of meaningful, at least to me. So I'm, I'm really happy to hear you think it's sophisticated. I'll take it.
0: Well, we've got here, um, you know, you're a musician, you went to school for performing arts. I know that you have a background in literature. So there's a level of creativity. How do you think that that has fueled your journey, really?
1: I did have a very early interest in, again, the kind of technical parts of language, which is unusual. Many young people dabble in writing sonnets, you know, or, you know, memoirs. But I was always very, very attuned to things that everybody else hated in school, you know, sentence diagramming and syntax. Even I'll I'll admit, it's embarrassing, but I'll admit even from a very young age, I used to love grammar worksheets and the like. So, you know, I don't know what Freud would say, but that's probably how it all started.
0: And when we look at your journey before you started your career in terms of legal writing, did you actually practice as an attorney?
1: I did practice and, you know, I went to law school ignorant of the law and really of law school. And I was a little bit dazed, frankly, for the first weeks. But I actually ended up really, really loving the law. I really enjoyed law school and I was quite enthusiastic about becoming a lawyer. And I I worked in one of these huge, huge firms, international firms for a couple of years. And uh, I obviously took another path after that, but I did enjoy being a lawyer and I still do enjoy the law. You know, the law broadly construed, separate and apart from my day-to-day
0: work. And did you have an opportunity to do any oral advocacy?
1: I did actually when I was in school, uh, of course. And I even in my very brief tenure, uh, two years, and then I did actually do a little bit of legal work, although not full-time after, I did do some oral advocacy, both uh, formal and informal. It may be a relic from my music days, I've never had any fear of public speaking, but I'm still more comfortable with writing than speaking as, at least as a lawyer.
0: How would you compare yourself at the beginning of your career and now?
1: Well, it's interesting. We're actually moving residences, empty nester syndrome, they call it. And I I came across a paper I wrote in law school. So your question is pretty timely. And I actually don't think my style itself has changed Mm -hmm. as much as you might expect, given the relentless focus on writing in the subsequent 20 years. But I've certainly like been able to systematize what I'm doing and also what, a, you know, more important, what a lot of lawyers and judges I respect are doing. And I've been able to take a lot of things that I may have learned on the street, so to speak, or done intuitively or understood intuitively, and I've been able to turn them into something I can hopefully explain and impart to other people. So the biggest change is probably in how I conceive of writing, particularly legal writing, as opposed to my actual writing style.
0: Do you think that was a more organic development or were you proactive in developing your craft as a legal writer? It's interesting that I
1: did do literary studies, which makes, again, it makes it sound like I sat around reading sonnets all day when actually I was really, even, you know, as a doctoral student, I was uh, very interested in syntax, meaning, semantics, linguistics, I always had a penchant for you know, really streamlined narrative nonfiction with great clarity, great focus without a lot of editorial commentary. So if I look back now, it's, you know, it is always a little hard to figure out what happened or how you became the way you are. That part was probably the driving force is this great admiration for really, really clear, somewhat technical writing. And that sort of propelled me even in law school. So I didn't, as I said, I didn't know anything about the law. I mean, really, truly, when I had my first torts class, I'd never heard of a tort, for example. But I was, even in the legal writing class you have to take in the United States, it's mandatory in your first year. You know, a light bulb went off on the very first day and I recognized my own comfort zone. So Maybe organic in that sense, as I tried to find myself, right? It all sounds so great now when you read off the list of accomplishments, but after becoming a lawyer and deciding to go in another direction, I did have to figure all this out. Uh, I had to work quite hard uh, to get the first of all those dominoes in your list to fall.
0: Who would you say are your top legal writers?
1: I'm really good at pandering, so I'm talking to England, so I have to say Lord <laughs> Denning. We of course read Lord Denning doctrinally, you know, that's one of my concerns about the way the law is taught is you're, you're never really even prompted to explore the way judges reason through opinions, right? We read them for the content, right? So we can spot the right issues on the exams. So Lord Denning is certainly a beacon, I think, in this realm. There are others I've been reading, uh, this Irish uh, justice, I've been reading a bit of his writing lately, also fantastic. But of course, in the United States, Justice Scalia, Justice Kagan, Chief Justice Roberts, certainly those three. And then we do have, on the advocacy side, we have, you know, we're, we're very much a celebrity culture here. That even permeates appellate advocacy and trial work. There are stars and celebrities with, looks like PR teams, quietly on retainer. So there's some really great advocates here as well. Paul Clement is the one name people cite a lot, but there are quite a few others too. And then I've also studied the work of the Office of the Solicitor General, which is the federal government entity that represents the United States. And as I'm sure you know, we have a lot of creative types of litigation. The government, the federal government's doing the states, the states doing each other, especially these days the states suing the federal government, political parties suing the states, then the states. So, Solicitor General here, very, very powerful, very prestigious, very, very respected. So, I've spent quite a bit of time studying the strategies of that office as well.
0: Is there a common thread that you found with all of these people and officers that you've named that you think makes them great?
1: That's one of the great questions and not not easy to answer, not easy to articulate I gave you sort of an impromptu list thinking of Justice Holmes, Justice Jackson here, you know, figures from long ago, what would be the common thread? So the common thread is there's a certain joyousness in the prose. It's joyousness about kind of intellectual happiness or verve that manifests itself at the level of words and phrases. So that can vary from person to person, but there's a certain spirit There's an energy, you feel it, but the energy is not rhetorical. It's not energy attached to snide attacks on other judges or lawyers. It's a little bit of fun, right? And of course, you need to have a lot of confidence and have completely mastered the substance of what you're writing about in order to convey that spirit. That's what I see kind of linking all these people from various jurisdictions and eras and people in different roles is that kind of verve.
0: So now moving on to your career development, why did you stop practicing as an attorney and then focus on legal writing?
1: I'm a very restless type. It's been kind of my pattern from a young age. So I had visions or delusions, whatever you want to call them of writing books and doing journalism and also teaching. So I actually did do a little bit of all three I did not necessarily, though, think that I would focus like a laser beam on legal writing per se, although now looking back, that does seem fairly predictable if you just look at the tea leaves up to that point. So not necessarily one to think things through as much as I could or should, but I was looking to create something I could do where I would be independent somehow, independent and have some flexibility, which is not so easy to get when you're in a huge, huge law firm, of course.
0: That's very true. So what were your first projects then in terms of legal writing?
1: You know, one kind of funny thing, although it's going to date me, is I I taught at the first online university and my students were all prisoners. Uh, They were taking business law. Well, I should say they weren't all prisoners. It's also, um, there were some people in Iraq. It was during that time. I also, you know, I had a smattering of other students as well. But it was a business law class officially, as I said, but it became a criminal law class. They all, in the very, very early type of platform they had in online universities, they were still able to ask me questions. So they would say, you know, if you are convicted of murdering three people, but you really murdered only two, can you appeal just the one? So I did that. So that was really, really exciting and nerve wracking at times, not just for the reason I just gave, but also just trying to teach back then online. I also taught at a bricks and mortar law school here in Washington, D.C., George Washington Law School, and I worked as a journalist. I did some big investigatory pieces for various outlets, and those got picked up, you know, movie rights and so forth. So I did that. And then, again, way back before remote work was even a phrase, I actually uh, edited and wrote briefs, mainly appellate briefs for a firm and that's something I'm very grateful for. I was actually, um, unfortunately I was thinking over the weekend, uh, September 11th, the actual September 11th, I remember getting a courier package of you know the, the record and I would sit there back then and edit briefs and have the courier bring them downtown uh, Washington. And I did that as well. So I did a number of things. We had a baby by then, so I needed to make some money, but I did do all those things uh, at once. I've never thought about this before, but one thing I probably picked up from that early experience with the remote work before it was remote work was that you want to be a little bit closer to a machine or a factory. Hopefully, as to use your earlier word, a sophisticated one, but I did back then learn to produce things incredibly quickly.
0: So that leads me quite nicely to my next question. You had mentioned earlier systemizing your work. So what is your process for drafting a brief?
1: I have a pretty distinct um, process, although it sounds so much nicer the way you say a process. When you start <laughs> saying a process, people think I'm more sophisticated, think I'm more like you. So I actually advise people to do the same thing that I did myself, which is to keep working in lists of three. So right off the bat, there's an Americanism for you, right off the bat, if you had just... 30 seconds and could say, I always start with what you would say. You could just speak three sentences. You know, what would those be? And then take each one of those. If you could support that first sentence with three subpoints, what would those be? And on from there. And then when you're talking about facts, you know, relaying facts or even procedure, I have a little bit of a different take. And that is if you know you're about to churn out 20 pages of facts from some sort of record or some you know body of evidence, if the court remembered just three details, what would you want them to be? And going from there. So you can kind of see it's not a glamorous approach. It's not, again, it's not a literary approach. It's a linear approach. But the idea is at all times, you know what you're doing and you know where you are in the process, and you know that you're about to accomplish something, right? There are little milestones, Give yourself a break and then move on to the next step. So very, very linear, 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 linear. And then even get to the paragraph level. Sometimes with people who are brilliant but ramble or digress or are too wordy, what I'll do is I'll say, just, let's just pretend we take the first sentence of the paragraph and add the phrase for three reasons. And then we're going to number them first, second, third or as you might say, first, secondly, thirdly. You see that a lot in the UK, secondly, thirdly. You can see, yes. I'm jealous of everything you have over there except the weather, <laughs> of course. So yeah, so that's what I've honed over the years, is this idea of linearity and always having a sense of where you are in the process and what you're about to be done with.
0: That's so clear. if I could just put it in that way it's so simple and so clear and also just from speaking to other guests Roger Dodd in particular three seems to be the magic number because he speaks about trilogies when he's doing his cross-examination
1: yeah it's interesting there's research backing that up there's philosophy you know people say it's related to the Holy trinity I've heard all sorts of theories but there is something about three i mean maybe again we're over complicating something maybe it's something as pedestrian and mundane as that's just sort of a manageable number of reasons right if you have only two people think you're lying if you have four or five now they start to think you haven't really worked things through but there is something i guess beautiful in its own way about three
0: now in terms of training judges because i know you do that as well you've never sat on the bench yourself but you are respected and you do train them so what put you in the position to be able to train judges?
1: Yeah, that reminds me of the Olympics with Simone Biles and people were criticizing her and a lot of people on Twitter said, Well, let's see your uh, you know, quadruple flip or whatever, whatever it is she does, you know, whatever she does, it's like can't even describe it. It looks so amazing. So Um, I don't want that reaction, right? I don't want people to say, who the hell are you? You're no honorable anybody. I don't remember you being up there on TV nominated by a president. So one of the things I did early on, and I should point out, and this probably won't surprise you, that in the very niche world of legal writing, it's not like you start training judges in the third week, right? You have to sort of, you need a very, very strong reputation before they put you in front of a bunch of confident, I'll use a nice word, confident federal judges, in the United States. But what I did early on is really what I've tried to do since the start. And that is not to talk about what I think, because I don't even care about what I think, but to show the judges what other judges, living and dead, have done. Judges I know that they respect, right, or admire, to try to show them and explain to them what's actually going on in these opinions or judgments and how they can follow suit. So when you approach teaching that way, you don't get any of that defensiveness, right? Because they would be absolutely within their rights to say, you know, that I don't think they would necessarily say that I shouldn't be allowed to speak to them because I'm not a judge. But what they could very well say is I'm one of these ivory tower consultants, right? Not like an academic who has these visions of opinion writing when I have no idea how it really works. And what, again, what kind of, pressures they're under. So that was sort of my secret, right? That disarms the listeners. And judges are, believe it or not, some of my best audiences.
0: I can imagine they would be because that seems to be such a gentle way of training. It's not critical. There's no way it can be overly critical. It's just opening their eyes to one of their counterparts and saying, well, this person did it. This is why it works. What do you think? Exactly. So you know, I, I don't know
1: if you had a different experience studying law, but we don't learn anything about the craft of opinions. I think nowadays some law schools do teach an opinion writing class and they use my book. That's how I know. But one good thing about judges also is that no matter how accomplished they are, they've usually not thought about judgment writing or opinion writing. right? So they're, again, they're not defensive for that reason as well. That doesn't mean I wasn't nervous the first time I did
0: it. <laughs> One of my questions actually was, is there any pushback from them? So, and it doesn't sound like there is much pushback from judges, but do you get pushback generally in your training? Generally,
1: the answer is no. Uh, obviously, uh, I've had some scattered pushback. Some of which, by the way, is has been helpful. I better not be defensive myself if I'm saying I don't want my audiences to be defensive. But honestly, I'll, I'll knock on wood here. Really... I've experienced almost no pushback. You know, it doesn't mean, I mean, this is a profession filled with people who are proud of their command of the language and are generally in love with their own views, right? Or And not afraid to express them. So, you know, in England, I've had this, in the United States, and Asia, people will actually say, well, Lord Denning was actually overrated. You know, he's really mediocre. Like, let me tell you how to say this better. So you'll get a little bit of that, right? There's no, it isn't like it's, people are obliged to embrace, you know, Justice Scalia's sentence just because it's from Justice Scalia. But apart from that, no. Now, again, I'm very, very careful, and this is why I do try to meet and get to know a lot of lawyers. I'm very careful, at least I try to be really careful. I don't want to advise people to do things that are just not realistic, right? So the idea that you tell judges, you know, just wrap the opinion and, you know, just put it aside for a few days and then come back to it when you're fresh. That just does not happen, right? They are trying to churn out the judgment for the opinion and move on to the next fire.
0: You have mentioned traveling to, you know, the UK and other areas of the world. I know it's probably quite a jurisdictional thing, but what are the key differences that you have seen? If we start small first with say England and the States. Yeah, one really,
1: really fantastic thing I got to do is go to the kingdom of Bhutan when they they became a democracy and I got to train what became their early judiciary. So I had a lot of time to think about your question then because until the first law school emerged, they went to India for their education. And then they were, of course, familiar with a lot of UK writers as well and American writers. You know, you also don't want to generalize. So I'd say a couple of things. Uh, So the first is, again, back to my, my observation that the celebrity culture in the United States permeates the world of lawyers and judges in a way that's just not the case anywhere else in the world. So in the United States, judges become household names. Often a Supreme Court opinion will be the top story back when people read, you know, hard copies of newspapers would be above the fold, as they say in the New York Times, you know, journalists who cover courts are fairly glamorous here. I mean, it's a plum position, very prestigious. So you'll have the sense in the United States, and there are good and bad things alike, that many judges when they're writing are thinking about social media and the media in general and about Impressing law students and clerks and becoming famous and maybe getting the attention of the president. So, the good part of that is the best judges in the United States spend a lot more time and energy on their opinions than probably any other judges in the world. And it shows. The bad part, of course, is that's not supposed to be the point of judging, right? So, one thing I have had to adjust to, including in the UK, is a lot of people don't want to be famous, right? They're shocked. Well, I'm American. They can't be that shocked when I say, "Oh, Justice Scalia it's incredible." People want to just autograph on the street. So, do you want to know how we started sentences? No, they actually don't necessarily think that's even a good norm. Now, the other thing I would say is that in the UK and certainly in India, uh, to give another example you have, it's not that the judgments are longer, I mean, they're not, I've done a little bit of empirical research, they're not longer. There's a surprising amount of repetition and rambling, though, I've noticed, and a little bit counterintuitively, self-reference. So a lot of the time in the high court in the UK, the paragraphs will be filled with things like, I should say at the outset that it does occur to me that, but of course, rather, there's a lot of what what you call meta-commentary in the field. You don't see nearly as much of that in the United States, other than in dissents. One last thing, if you're curious, the other thing I noticed a lot more block quoting in the UK of long paragraphs over and over and over again. Um, That's the norm around the world. Not so much in the United States. It's sort of frowned upon. And then another interesting uh, nugget is in the world of international arbitration, that's probably the most extreme case of all, which proves that the American style is not that popular. Nowhere in the entire legal profession do you see more and more pages after pages really consisting of just so-and-so professor of jurisdiction stated colon and the whole page is block quoted. The next paragraph is, and then later, so-and-so said colon and so forth. They're not like Lord Denning anymore. In other words, kind of (laughs) the anti-Lord Dennings.
0: What do you think made Lord Denning so great, other than his zinger opening sentences?
1: Yeah, this is the case of the barmaid badly eaten by the dog. If you take what probably for the times was a little bit uh, of a shocker opening, right, and even by our times it might be, I'm generally a little bit cynical about one-liners uh, like that. I know people love them and I do too, but what you'll see a lot of time is there's a sort of burst of something witty and then all hell breaks loose and there's incoherence and rambling. What Lord Denning was able to do is, again, keeping the spirit. There's a little bit of joy, right? You have to have some enthusiasm to have all that alliteration with the barmaid and the badly bitten. Able to keep that when it gets tough. You can't keep making little puns and jokes and sound effects when you're talking about the case law, right? I think it's the first strict liability for animals case in the common law. He's able to take that and talking about precedent, right? Talking about doctrines, talking about the purpose of torts. That's what's really rare. Every judge, every advocate can come up with a line or two that will sound clever, right? It's sustaining that spirit through the dull and dry but very important stuff that makes someone like Lord Denning so exceptional.
0: Let's focus now on practical things that we, and I include the listeners in that, can do to improve our writing. Now, one of the things that is prevalent in all of your books and and certainly in Brief Catch, which I've used, is the use of plain and simple language. During my research for this podcast, I had the pleasure of listening to you um, discuss Kanye West's contract and the fact that that wasn't plain and simple. So let's look at Kanye's um, the issue of Kanye's contract. What was problematic about it? Imagine
1: me being 16 years old doing auditions uh, in music and someone said, one day you'll be talking about Kanye West's contracts and analyzing the language. You know, 0% chance. I have to admit, I love this Kanye West story. And there is a lot of, uh, you know, Americanism, Americana in it. Uh, Again, the idea that even contracts would become glamorous and used as a weapon on Twitter, very American. So long story short, Kanye West um, had a number of really prestigious well-known law firms working for him over the years. And he was very frustrated, you know, in two ways. So he was frustrated about the terms, but more in line with what we're discussing, he now somewhat famously said on Twitter a little bit, you know, maybe he was copying from what you just said. Maybe he knew what you were going to say about plain language. He said, you know, why can't people understand these contracts? You know, you're paying all this money with these lawyers. And then the other thing he pointed out in uh, another tweet was, Lawyers aren't even good at explaining the contracts. So even if you concede that you should not be able to understand them at all, and by the way, I'm not sure he should have to concede that, they're not able to explain them. So the reason I seized on this is if you actually pull some of the provisions, which is what I did in that on that show you're talking about, what I've tried to do to kind of make peace between the plain language brigade and uh, what we might call like traditionalists is explain that there is you can't just say legalese plain language you know evil good good evil there's plain language that does help with precision concision lightening the load on the users without any sacrifice of substance and then there's plain language that goes too far you're taking terms of art or words or phrases that have a fairly set meaning in the common law and statutes in one jurisdiction or the other and you're you're replacing them with completely unfamiliar terms that do more harm than good. And that's sort of been sort of the missing link in this supposed battle, right? Where both sides are frustrated. The lawyers who are more traditional, again, are not wrong when they say that some of this is dumbed down or worse, right? But the plain language people, of course, have really great points when they say that that is also used as a little bit of a cop-out. So trying to find the middle ground.
0: Absolutely. Just in my practice, and for anyone that doesn't know, I'm a family practitioner and often have to draft agreements between local authorities and parents. And these may be parents who haven't had much of an education, may have literacy problems, so they need to be able to understand it. And it's not as easy as you think it. (laughs) You really have to train yourself, don't you? Not to use those big words, not to use all these filler words and make it more complicated. And also to think of how do you express a word so that you don't oversimplify and lose the legal meaning but so that someone else can understand it
1: i don't know if you've heard about this i find it fascinating inside of south africa it's a project to use graphics and make them binding they actually got a legal opinion making them binding and it's in the kind of situation that you're referring to you know family law landlord tenant in a residential setting simple wills in estates so From what I understand about this project, of course, many lawyers in South Africa and elsewhere said, this is a terrible idea. You cannot possibly take all the complexities of the law and reduce them to pictures. But apparently it's working, which shows that maybe we need to be a little bit more adventurous or a little bit more creative before we assume that we can't really change. Because I really do believe... When you have consumers or probably even more so domestic, divorce, custody and the like, it's sort of almost a moral responsibility of the profession to make sure that the clients can understand most of the points. You know, And I think that most people in those, I'm sure, very stressful situations certainly understand intuitively that there are going to be a few words or phrases they don't know and maybe they would ask you. But... We can do better. I mean, in general, it's better in England, by the way. Contracts are better in England. They're clearer, they're simpler, but we can still all do all do better.
0: Are there certain types of words that we should avoid using? And I say that because when I'm cross-examining, I tend to avoid adverbs and adjectives because they become arguing points with the witness and I'm not interested in that. I just want to get the answer. And I focus on nouns and verbs instead. I don't think that necessarily translates to writing because there is a place for those kind of words there, but is there anything that we should be avoiding in order to make it simple? I okay. think you might
1: be underselling your own point though. I think you're, you're actually right when it comes to written advocacy as well. I try to never be rigid. I mean, I would never say something like cut all adverbs from your submission, from your filing, but what, what you're describing that you're doing in cross-examination for what I gather is an important purpose, right? When you add a modifier, The person being cross-examined now has a way of denying the sentence because you've added a subjective element to the question. So there's something about that that's really important that does, in my experience, carry over to written work product. When you don't let yourself rely on adverbs, right, like tentatively contended, vociferously contended, you try to find a verb that actually expresses precisely what you're really, really going for, it's harder than adding the adverb, right? To say that the stock price, the share price fell. Well, it fell dramatically, right? Well, what did it really do? What does that mean to fall dramatically? Does it mean plunge? Does it mean plummet? Does it mean dip? You're now being more precise yourself and also giving the reader a mental picture that if done well, can really convey what you want the reader to see. I mean, you can almost do an experiment. If you close your eyes and imagine, I said fell, so I'll give you the opposite. The price of the stock increased dramatically or precipitously yesterday. You don't really see anything, but if I say it's skyrocketed, you do.
0: You do, absolutely. That's so true. So now just looking at the look of a document that we prepare, do you have any advice on formatting?
1: There's a book here in the United States called uh, Typography for Lawyers. And I met the author, I remember in Santa Monica, he, you know, he came down in his bike and put the ocean behind him. And I thought, this guy has the greatest job ever, right? He's like, he talks about typography for lawyers. I think he has a graphic design degree from Harvard. I mean, how lucky is this guy? Lives in Santa Monica. So he's had a huge amount of influence in a profession, again, that's slow to change. So a lot of what I think um, really w- would come from those kind of people, I don't think of myself as having any particular expertise in the visual part of written advocacy. So just a couple of pointers. One would be to choose fonts carefully. I mean, there could be some overkill, but there's plenty of research out there now showing that fonts matter. And all you need to do is look at advertisements and you can find out as I have talking to executives of advertising companies, they've done lots of studies, private studies, showing the same. So choosing a font carefully and making it a brand, right? Making it consistent is one. Obviously, sometimes there are rules. I don't know if that's the case in the UK. Here we have crazy courts that try to control everything, exactly what font they want, the, the you know, the spacing, the right margin. Uh, if, if you have rules, you follow them. But otherwise pick a font uh, that's sort of book-like is the general advice. Century, school book, Palatino, Garamond, something that reminds people of books. Uh, Another is to force yourself to have wide margins. Okay, people think, oh no, I I wanna squeeze more words. Trust me, wide margins make the reader feel more relaxed and you're likely to increase comprehension. But the third is probably I think the most exciting because it sort of goes with other trends like working from home and technology and also maybe changes in how we actually are now absorbing and processing information. And that is to use more visual aids, tables, charts, graphs, appropriate photographs, timelines. When you're trying to convey something, you know, family law, I can think of, for example, a timeline, you know, how many months went by. It's when you have a picture and you actually can show visually the passage of time and the sequence of events that can be really compelling and probably really important in an era in which People are really, really exhausted looking at screens, right? Physically, mentally, and for most of us, both, right? Eye strain and boredom. Uh, So I'd say those three pick a font carefully, wide margins, and don't be afraid of tables, charts, enumerated lists that are tabbed, simple, simple graphs, and especially timelines.
0: That's so true. And where do you stand on footnotes? Because you didn't mention those. And the reason why I asked that is because I had read in Justice, the late Justice Scalia, and Brian Garner's Making Your Case. Brian Garner says, don't put any substantive points in the footnotes, while Justice Scalia says, no, definitely do that. And then when it came to citations, Garner said, put the citation to the footnotes, and then uh, Justice Scalia disagreed with that. So there was this wonderful back and forth in that book. Where do you stand?
1: Just one quick preliminary. One problem with legal writing training and discussion is people will issue edicts all the time. Don't do this, do that, don't do this. And when they say don't do this, they rarely explain what someone should do who wants to do the thing they say is so terrible. Okay, So if we think about something like footnotes, The intuitive answer is yeah, nobody likes footnotes, right? They remind you of school or something overly academic. So the real question is, which I think the two of them are arguing over or debating. It's a friendly debate. Hopefully, it's pretty civil. Topic is what should you do with the kinds of things people like to put or think should go in footnotes? Okay, so as you said, you already have two categories: citations on the one hand, and then substance or actual content on the other. And then even citations, you have legal citations, record citations. So you have all sorts of permutations possible. So what Justice Scalia was getting at, he actually in that passage references the briefs of the Office of the Solicitor General, which I was mentioning a little bit earlier. And he says that over there, they, they're they some of the best brief writers in the country, and they use footnotes, substantive footnotes. So what do people use substantive footnotes for? Well, let's say you have a statutory case or a regulatory case and they have the fights over a phrase. Well, very often a judge might want to see the whole provision, right? Do you want to fill up your whole page though with a big, long provision when only four words matter? No. Do you want to put it in the appendix? They'll never look? No. So people think that should go in a footnote, right? What about more authorities for the same point? Same idea, right? Did do we really have to go back to 1970 or, you know, 1742 uh, for you? Or, well, no, but I want to show that there's a trend here, right? So footnotes, you know, once in a while, I have an ancillary point. I don't want to not make it, but I don't think it belongs in the body. So footnotes. So you'd have to tell people what you think they should do in those three cases, right? You need more statutory text for context, more authorities for the same point or a side point, point. and there's no really easy answer. Because again, people are generally right when they feel like using a footnote, there's something intuitive that makes sense. So the interesting thing with the pandemic, so so hard to be positive, right? So one thing I've noticed, it's probably the case in the UK too, is that judges are becoming increasingly hostile to having citations and footnotes. And the reason is not at all intellectual. It's that When you read things on a screen and you feel compelled to look in a footnote for a citation, for example, it's very hard to find your place on the screen, right? Think about in hard copy, you usually remember, you know, I was looking up at the top and your neck, you remember. So they get very, very frustrated when the citations are not right after the point cited. On the other hand, those substantive footnotes, if they're rare and they're used just for those instances I mentioned, might be a good compromise. And that was sort of Justice Scalia's point. If the Solicitor General's Office uses footnotes, they're probably, in some cases,
0: advisable. Got it. (laughs) Thank you so much for answering that. It does seem it's perfectly right it is on a case-by-case basis, just using your judgment properly. It's
1: not easy being a lawyer, not even joking. It's not easy getting all this balance right.
0: No, mainly because the answer is it depends. Isn't that our stock answer?
1: Yes, I mean, but but on the other hand, we don't want to use that as a way to avoid thinking, right? Or as a way to avoid taking a stand on some of these writing issues. And just trying to find the sweet spot is, you know, I think appropriately a lifelong, career long challenge.
0: Where we can take a stand though, is things like headlines. I know that one of the things that completely changed the way that I was writing was instead of having a bland headline like, introduction issue the law you say turn it into a question make it engaging and by saying having it as a question so what does the court need to decide instead of the issue it engages you immediately and i found myself interested in what i was writing can you just explain why how that came about and why you thought it was so effective
1: one thing that i've that I've tried to explain that sounds really simple, but people don't usually think of it this way is what happens when you are online reading something, you know, fairly serious, you know, something about economics or politics or, you know, even local events. So your eye is going to scan, right, for us now the screen. And without thinking about it, we're making snap judgments based usually on the headline right? Am I going to read the first sentence of this article? Am I going to skip to the, is my eye going to keep going? So the interesting corollary is what is it that makes us decide I want to read this article or not? It's not just the content, right? Because hundreds of people write about the same things every day, but we read only some articles. So there are two reasons to use this and maybe a slightly more subdued form in written advocacy. So the first is kind of to your point, when you actually have something that's coherent, it doesn't have to be a question, right? It can be a declarative statement as well. You now are trying to sort of sell somebody on wanting to know more. You're giving them sort of the goal, right? This is the thing I'm trying to get you to adopt. I need you to understand this or I haven't done my job. And you are now in the right frame of mind. You're trying to now draw them in so they can have comfort trusting you. So that's The first value add, you actually are committing now to proving a point. You're putting the burden on yourself. What a lot of lawyers do is they put the burden on themselves to just relay a lot of information and make sure they're being exhaustive, but they haven't actually committed to a coherent point. The other reason it's important is, you know, more um, down to earth or mundane. And it kind of goes back to what we were discussing when it comes to wide margins, tables and graphs. We really have changed, right? Humans have changed in their reading tastes. I mean, I think there's some research authors saying that people actually read more now, not less overall, if you count everything online. But we're incredibly impatient readers. You can see just best-selling books, the average number of pages in a chapter is plummeting all the time, especially here, pretty soon chapters will just be one sentence, right? There'll be like an episode that lasts five seconds in the season. Having more of those headings also breaks your text into what might look like more manageable, digestible pieces. And that, in some ways, is just as important as the first reason. You're making the process of understanding your point and adopting your point or your points, you're trying to make it seem more manageable, fewer hurdles for for the decision maker to have to jump over.
0: So is this a way of making long-winded, wordy document, concise and punchy. That's one of the techniques that you can use in order to cut through a lot of the waffle. You've asked the question, you've made a declarative statement, answer it, start engaging, engage your reader, cut out all the nonsense.
1: My general experience and a little, this is also a little bit my critique about the way legal writing is taught is, there's too much focus on abstractions like sentence length. When someone reads, Nobody's thinking, you know, that sentence had 32 words. I'm sure it could have been 29 or 28.5 words. Nobody really, really cares about length of sentences in the abstract. What they're picking up on when they feel like the sentences are long and short is very often not mathematically that the sentences are long and short. It's a feeling, again, of verb and forward motion. So by focusing more on kind of in the affirmative sense, what kinds of words and phrases am I going to cut? and trim so that my actual points shine on the page, that's generally your best path to being more concise. I mean, maybe someone's so extraordinary at writing, every word they write is already the only word they need. I think our Chief Justice Roberts is maybe a little bit like that, or Justice Kagan over here. But for 99.99999% of us, the secret is ruthlessly trimming, but not in this kind of depressing power struggle way, like, oh, you know they're just trying to make me cut a page and you know they're trying to make me cut my points or why can't people just read what i have to say and start being so demanding more in a positive sense i'm cutting away the sort of the brush around the points so that my actual points jump off the page
0: you also have a i'll call it a technique called why should i care and that i being the judge why should the judge care about what it is that you're writing your case And I think that's quite self-explanatory. But are there any other questions that we could be asking ourselves as we're writing in order to make it a tighter and better document? Let me just go
1: back for a second, because actually, I'm not sure it's self-explanatory to everyone. Because, first of all, when I make this point, what people often wonder about is, am I saying that you should make a sort of emotional or broad Policy argument—that's what I should care about, right? I should care about, you know, not destroying the world or saving humanity. So why should I care? In my sense, is not so much what are the two or three or four doctrinal or factual reasons I should win, but kind of flip it around and you ask yourself, why would it be bad for my opponent to win? And that's not the same question, right? Those are not the, uh, the same questions at all. So trying to think about why there'd be some ill effect from your opponent winning as opposed to from you losing can be quite challenging, but really, really fruitful. So when you ask about other questions, we can make a little artificial segue, a really big problem that's only getting worse is people will write in an advocacy setting as though it's a conversation between one side and the judge. Okay. The only reference to the other side is rhetorical, like all everything is an opposite or wrong or misleading or egregious or disingenuous or speciously disingenuously misleading or misleadingly specious. You need to be able to remember at all times what your opponent is arguing before you start shooting it down, right? You can't just dismiss it automatically. You need to be able to get in the mindset of your opponent and articulate, even if your opponent can't do it. Someone's going to figure it out, right? Or if no one figures it out, it's going to be appealed. Someone smart will come around somewhere and figure out what your opponent should have argued. Uh, not to mention, most of us are not as smart as we think, and our opponents are not as dumb as we think either, right? There's a lot of that here. I always wonder, where are all these opponents I hear They're incompetent, terrible, horrible writers. No one ever comes up to me and says, I'm an incompetent, unethical, terrible writer. So maybe they just <laughs> live in caves and never go to uh, <laughs> seminars. I don't know. So kind of the next step after why should, why would the judge care the next morning, you know, after finding for your opponent would be if you were your opponent, what is the best substantive point you'd want to make that would make you squirm in your seat the most? Like what's the one thing you'd sort of grind your teeth if you heard, because you know it's a weakness. And then the other thing I try to get people to do and they thank me later is, what is the one fact that makes you the most nervous? So one substantive point, what's the one fact you see as at least intuitively favor your opponent and using that to strengthen your own advocacy. Again, not trying to pretend that you are just talking to the judge and that no other party plays a role.
0: That's a really great question, isn't it? which would enable you to do the intellectual work to contextualize bad facts that you may have.
1: It's so true, right? Because you often, when you read advocacy writing in this profession, you don't really know what the parties are arguing over, right? So if you say, this is a standard that should apply, or my opponent never did X, Y, Z, the question is, well, your opponent did something. I mean, my client, I mean, my client did never did X, Y, Z. Well, what did your client do? There must be something that's causing this impasse, right? Why are we in litigation? Why are we in arbitration? Why are we in an appellate setting? Really thinking that through can, as you say, really help you put, as you just said, bad facts in context and also make your legal analysis a fight between two views, not just, you know, walking into someone's house and trying to sell them on a vacuum cleaner, pretending that they don't have any other vacuum cleaners that they could buy, right? It's probably getting harder and harder again when you work from home and you at a computer all day long. It's even easier to think that you're writing a sort of love letter to the judge. But your opponent, of course, is doing the same behind the
0: scenes. How can we go for the jugular respectfully? Because in England, we're not rude. We're quite polite. We're not overly critical of of our parties and certainly not of our learned friends in our writing. But sometimes, you know, things are said where you really just have to hit it on the head and you need to go for the jugular. But I was just wondering how you can do that without burning bridges, upsetting people and being outrageous.
1: So- I have to ask you, have you ever seen that prime minister's questions? That's harsh. and you
0: <laughs> That's so true.
1: Have you seen your country folk after what well, you call them football games, right? They're not oh so goodness, polite yes. then. No yeah, <laughs> so I'm glad. I'm glad you had the legal profession is, you know, setting a better example. I mean, we're joking, but it is true. There, you know, there's this sort of backhanded politeness you'll see in a lot of judgments. You know, while it is perfectly understandable why my learned colleague, blah blah blah, would believe X, and you know what the judge is really thinking is, I can't believe I'm in the same building as this moron, right? How the <laughs> heck do we have the same title and I should be the chief? So. There is something like that that I do, I have to be honest, appreciate, right? There's a type of civility that the profession's completely lost in this country that you seem to be able to maintain, at least outwardly, right? At least in your filings. Uh, you don't have judges airing their dirty laundry and their loathing and hatred for each other the way we do every minute or every hour these days. There's far too much time, energy, and space devoted to how wrong you think some other party is. And a lot of synonyms, you know, bandied about not enough, you know, my my opponent or the plaintiff or the appellant argues X, but Y, without saying over and over again, you know, therefore X is incorrect and therefore because it's so incorrect, the court should not rely on it. And since the court should not rely on that, it should rely on me. Less of that, right, and more of just one side says X, but Y, or one party relies on fact A, but is ignoring fact B, and less kind of self-congratulatory language about, it's just incredible.
0: You've also mentioned, when I was asking you about the differences in um, writing that you had seen, and you'd mentioned the block text within opinions and you'd have pages of this and then they'd go on and have pages of that. And I definitely know that I've been guilty of that earlier with quoting from case law. What is a more effective way of analysing and discussing case law within your written argument?
1: So the issues are probably twofold. One is, you'll notice that a lot of people, maybe not so much in the UK, but in other jurisdictions will bold or italicise, it's usually the middle of their block quote, Uh, They're trying to draw attention to the part that really matters. Well, guess what? That means the parts that you don't want to bold or italicize probably should have been paraphrased. So one issue is the argument's not, you know, rigid. Yes or no. It's how do I get my point across with the least possible burdening of the reader, the judge? Okay. so number one is of that language that you are feeling like you want to copy and paste, if you had to whittle it down, either paraphrase or skip it or use language in your actual body. That's issue one. And that already goes a long way. You're making the block quote less onerous. Now, the other challenge is probably more important, the more important of the two. It goes back to our discussion about headlines and why people read or don't read an article, even though they're in theory interested in the topic. So the advocate, the barrister, the lawyer needs to do a little bit of intellectual work so that the reader doesn't have to. So in other words, so and so stated, the court said, you know, the witness testified colon, block quote. The only thing needed for that is copy and pasting skills, right? And identifying, you know, the source. When you have a meaningful introduction to the block quote where you're actually distilling it down to the equivalent of what you'd see in as a heading or headline in an article, you're again, it's kind of like what we discussed in terms of the overall structure as a microcosm. You are now not saying, go read this quote. I am telling you it's really important and I want you to read it. You're saying, look, I know you don't wanna read this quote. I swear though, it matters and I don't wanna paraphrase the whole thing. If you read it, you'll be happy I didn't paraphrase it all. You'll wanna see the whole text. But we have to sell the reader on that by having a meaningful introduction, right? So I'm just making this up to the family court. You know, the father conceded that he never picked the kids up, colon, quote, is far more compelling than subsequently the father stated, colon, big quote, the reader now has to struggle through.
0: Now, let's talk about Brief Catch, because I have recently downloaded it, this software, and I think it's... Absolutely amazing. I was surprised as to how many changes that it made, uh, but certainly my writing was so much better by the end of it. So I've jumped in there slightly. Let's just roll back. Can you explain what brief catch is for our listeners?
1: Once the you know the technology used on uh, text started to boom, a lot of people in my seminars or clients or judges would ask if there's a way to make a lot of the editing automatic. Back then the term was always macro, like, could you make a macro that would make a lot of these edits for me? But eventually a light bulb went off and I thought, well, supply and demand, right? So I'm gonna do it. I eventually launched it uh, four years ago and then I've added a lot more since. So what's exciting for me is that A, a lot of people who are like struggle, like they have a lot of pressure on the job, they have too many clients with too many demands, it helps them. And that obviously makes you feel good to know that that's the case. But the other is it's going to be sort of a legacy, right? Because I'm, I am putting everything I've learned in 20 years and observed bit by bit into the software.
0: And listeners, I can say it's like having a mini Ross Guberman in your pocket when you're typing.
1: Probably better than actually having (laughs) even a mini version of me, but yes.
0: (laughs) I was just trialing it out and I was shocked because it even goes through the consistency of the language as well as the consistency of the punctuation. So when I had finished this and I pressed start and it started going through my document, it flagged up the fact that I wasn't consistently using Oxford commas. I was like, wow.
1: That's a really, you know, that's a hot button topic, the Oxford comma, of course. And it does actually do a quick scan to see what your preference seems to be. And then when you're contradicting yourself, right, let's, you know, it, it wait, wait, you know, be true <laughs> to yourself. Don't, don't uh, try to please everybody and go back and forth. Uh, yeah. You can tell, you can probably see I'm an Anglophile. I know it detects if you have like toward and then towards or among and amongst things where there's at least in theory a UK, US English split. We'll flag those two. Yeah. Consistency is, as documents get more complicated and longer, And deadlines get shorter, gets harder and harder for humans to find those inconsistencies. So I'm glad to hear, you know, at least you can yell at the software, not me. I actually do believe that people should use their own ear as a guide and they, you know, not overvalue something like if I say, "Eh, notwithstanding can be a little bit, you know, long-winded or pretentious, can you just try to spite? It's just an idea, right? It's just one way that a lot of writers lighten their sentences. It's not... Again, life or death, or anything even close to it. It's just a suggestion.
0: Well, we do have a competition for our listeners because we've been talking about Briefcatch. I'm not even sponsored by Briefcatch. I just love it. It's a genuine thing for me. And I thought it would be great if some of our listeners could have the experience of Briefcatch. And so we have some free three month licenses. So, Ross, can you announce our competition, please?
1: Sure. Let's do this. We'll give 20 3 month licenses out for free to the first 20 people who tweet. I think it's at um, advocacy podcast. Uh, something great about BB, the podcast, or both. You can add me at LegalRoundPro if you want, but I'm sure she'll be happy to lure me in. Uh, so first 20 who tweet something nice about her or her podcast, I'll give a three-month license to.
0: That's really nice, thank you. Um, Genuine reviews are also welcome as well. You are in for an absolute treat and thank you so much for your generosity, Ross, with those licenses for our competition. Now, we've spoken about brief catch, what's next for you?
1: A couple of things, but they're related uh, and that's to make it more educational, more of a training development, like a lifelong career long training development tool In addition, of course, to being an editing tool. So that's going to mean variations on the theme. Uh, So, in the last few months, we've added 7,000 example sentences, you know, tailored or tied to a lot of the editing rules. Uh, You know, a little bit of an international event. I mean, not surprisingly, many examples are American, but plenty from UK, including, uh, you know, Lord Denning, Lady Hale, uh, Assumption. So lots of examples and people love the examples. I wish I had thought of doing it earlier. And then also my, one of my visions is that it's the AI uh, will detect what you're trying to do. You know, you're opposing an injunction, uh, you're trying to distinguish case law and there'll be a kind of automatic pop-ups of things to think about, you know, language others have used to really help people write better uh, and not just At it more effectively. So there'll be variations on that theme in that sense. And then we'll have products that are geared more toward other types of legal documents, contracts, and then some that I have to keep quiet about for legal reasons. But I've got lots of um, ideas. And then I'm also trying to create something for students, uh, you know, kids, students that will be probably free along the same lines.
0: Are we going to get a third edition of Point Made?
1: I'm overdue both of my main books. Um, I'm overdue on the third edition and second edition, respectfully. So, you know, the world has been so tumultuous. It's, I mean, at some point, I have to sort of stop the clock and add examples and say, we're going to call it call it a day. So I actually am pretty close to finishing new editions of both books. I wonder, I don't know what you think about this, but Again, I, I love books. You know, I've always, we've always had a lot of books and even in moving, we're keeping some. I'm wondering though, when I really think about the way people like to learn, especially students, if hardcover print books or softcover print books are really going to be the way of the future or whether, again, I'll keep having the books, but I think a lot of it, I would like a lot of it to be instantly accessible to people when they're actually working as opposed to having to find it in a book or even on Kindle, because, yeah, of course, there is a Kindle version, there's an audio version, and people, yeah, you can search, but there's something to having it kind of just in time, so to, whatever you would want to learn or see appears on the screen. And that, you know, the first step of that is all these examples now I have, right? So a lot of what made those books successful were the examples, many of which are just a sentence, right? Or a short passage. So those will, again, be integrated in Brief Catch and other
0: products. I'm looking forward to that. That definitely would be incredibly helpful. Point
1: made changed my whole career. I mean, it's made my whole career. So I've am never abandoning it, don't worry.
0: <laughs> oh, thank God. It's obviously well written, but it's witty and engaging. That's what I enjoyed about it. I flew through that book. I know um Justin, the my colleague and assistant producer um of this podcast, I said Justin read that book and he did and absolutely loved it. And we recommend it to anyone and everybody <laughs> that, that we talk to me. I did two, two good
1: things, if I'm on, on advice. I've got wide margins and a big font, or maybe that's why. <laughs> but those bite-sized examples um, are what people really, really internalize. There's so much talking about writing in paragraphs, about writing in theory, and people agree with what they hear, it all makes sense, but what you really need to improve is a dissection at the micro level Right, why are the words the way they are in this sentence and how can you follow suit? So, by the way, one reason I'm glad you think the book is engaging, it really is fun to write books like that because the profession is so negative all the time and cynical and complaining. Mine was about greatness, right? Success, greatness. Instead of what not to do in writing, how about we focus for once on what to do?
0: That's exactly it. So that leads me nicely to my last few questions for you. Ross, what are three practical tips that our listeners can take on to improve their written advocacy?
1: So the first one is when you say three, we we, we really agree on three. So I'm even going to make my answer to the first, first one uh, be in terms of three. It's like three meta, meta, meta to the 10th power <laughs> here. So that is just kind of go back to what I mentioned, we discussed earlier, we, especially when you're feeling like you have a little writer's block or you're overwhelmed, just break it into chunks. What's the main thing I want to get across? What are three reasons that's true? Take the first one. What are three reasons that first point is true? And go from there. And I don't know if this counts as a second bit of advice or part of the first, but don't be afraid, which when I'm talking really means do it, but don't be afraid of in your mind, having sentences that in the First iteration, at least start with first, second, third, first, secondly, thirdly. That does not mean people take something they might hear from someone like me and they, they exaggerate it. No, I don't think paragraphs should all have numbered lists. Of course not. But they shouldn't all have sentences that just start with further, furthermore, moreover and ramble, right? So more lists of three. So that's tip one. Tip two would be at the word level. I actually don't think people should write exactly the way they speak, but just more like the way they speak. And it's getting to be a more and more important goal as time goes on. So when you're stuck, especially imagine how you would articulate the same point if you were simply having a conversation. You don't feel like you need to transcribe that because it might be a little bit too colloquial or too casual. But listen to the rhythm when you talk. People are really good at rhythm when they talk in this profession and not really good at rhythm when they write. So a lot of sentences are top heavy and they're bogged down. Try to replicate the rhythms of speech like you have to replicate the actual words of speech in your written work. That's number two. And then number three, a little bit different would be try to explore or experiment with this world of visual cues and graphics. Um, Again, This is where we're headed, you know, as a people and kind of part of that third tip, and I know it sounds corny, but people, I think, forgot this, you know, even the most powerful judges are really, I know a lot of them, I've been blessed to get to know a lot of them. As corny as it sounds, remember this, they really are just like everybody else, right? They're tired, they're hungry, you know, they want to stop, they want to go home, they don't want to read another submission. You know, they're trying to do the right thing. They're worried about the reputation. They do understand that, like your field family law, the stakes are high. So just try to think a little bit more of what would appeal to someone who just cannot care about your matter as much as you do. It's just not possible for any judge to care as much as you're going to, right? What would make things a little bit more palatable or digestible for us, a serious, you know, reader, but not one who's going to give. Every ounce of energy to what you write? What would, would be appealing to that imaginary person?
0: Well, those are three golden nuggets that I think our listeners will definitely be snapping up. My final question for you, Ross: where can our listeners connect with you online?
1: I try to push out a lot of you know free content on LinkedIn and Twitter. So just uh, Ross Gilberman for LinkedIn and at Legal Writing Pro. That's actually the name of my training company, Legal Writing Pro on Twitter. So those are two sources. I also have you know, newsletters, uh, briefcatch subscribers, as you might know, get some uh, more tailored proprietary nuggets as well. So I'd say LinkedIn, Twitter, or both if you're interested. And then also, you know, briefcatch.com, uh, which has obviously my software a free trial and a subscription too, but also has some content on it as well.
0: Well, thank you so much for being a guest on the Advocacy Podcast for us. I really enjoyed it.
1: You're you're so much fun to talk to and hopefully in better times we'll we'll meet live one day.
0: Yes, definitely, definitely. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Advocacy Podcast, Journeys to Excellence. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe and visit us at theadvocacypodcast.com for reading lists and other resources. Until next time.